I'm Aaron Reynolds, and you're listening to Explain Like I'm Five on the Canada 2020 Network, brought to you by Interact. As Canada's domestic debit network for over 30 years, Interact allows Canadians to pay how they want, when they want, and where they want, whether with your debit card, mobile, or wearable device. Learn more at interact.ca. I like to think that I'm an intelligent guy, but I know more about the Klingon rites of passage than I do about the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and that's kind of a problem. And that's why I'm inviting really smart people onto this show to explain things to me like I'm five. Today I have with me Michael Geist, law professor and Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at U Ottawa. We're trying to decode Canadian content regulations. Uh, TV and radio in Canada have a minimum amount of Canadian content that they have to broadcast. And so I would love to, if it's okay with you, have a conversation about why we have rules about that, uh, who regulates that stuff, what's regulated, how those rules work a little bit, and what does this look like for the future as we, as we move into a more Netflix-centric kind of uh, world? Sure. Thanks for joining me today, by the way. Oh, happy to be here. Um, and so uh, let's just start with that first thing. Why do we have rules around Canadian content? I think at its you know at its base level we ha- we have those rules because we live especially in Canada and in English Canada in a in a North American market where U.S. content is dominant, yeah, easily accessible in Canada and of course sold and, and readily recognized around the world. And I think for many years the sense has been that unless you reserved a certain amount of space for. Canadian stories for Canadian content that it would be overrun by U.S. content, which often has more dollars behind it, is more recognizable, and so you've got to reserve some of that space, whether that's space for Canadian artists from a musical perspective or space on the dial in the way that it once was from a television perspective. There's a a second component to that, though, so it isn't just about ensuring that Canadians have access to those stories, but also that we create an industry around Canadian culture. And one way to help ensure that Canadians can make a living out of participating in the cultural sector is to ensure that there is a ready market for what they're creating, which is one way that you help ensure that there's lots of Canadian film and television production, or at least television production, uh, that's taking place and that there's a ready place where it will be shown. Thank you. Um, And I think that that brings up a a couple of interesting questions there. Uh, One of the things that I was thinking about um, as I was doing a little bit of reading before talking to you was there's a lot of television production in Canada, but a lot of it we would not call Canadian television. Uh, No one would call Star Trek Discovery a Canadian television show. You know, or uh, or The Flash. No one would call The Flash a Canadian television show. Um, So I know that there are some rules about what makes content Canadian. What do those rules look like? Yeah, that's a great question. And many countries are faced with a similar kind of question. What does domestic content look like? And how do you judge whether something qualifies as as domestic content, in our case, obviously, Canadian content? And many countries do it differently. Mm -hmm. Um, In Canada, we've adopted a fairly strict point system. And the idea is that uh, the system identifies certain kinds of contributors to a, let's say, television production. 
and you get points where people in particular roles are Canadian. Okay. Now, that has the benefit of providing a fair amount of certainty and removing any kind of judgment call about whether something is Canadian or not. Um, and so while it may obviously exclude Star Trek Discovery uh, to the extent to which there aren't really much, there isn't really much Canadian there. Mm-hmm. You actually could qualify for Star Trek Discovery in theory if you had enough actors and directors and others participating in that process uh, who happen to be Canadian. Okay. Um, what it also means, though, is that there might be things that are, I think, to many people's minds quite clearly Canadian, a Canadian story, if part of this is about telling Canadian stories, but they might not qualify as CanCon if they don't have the requisite number of points. And I think it should be noted that there are other countries that do imbue their systems with a bit more of a judgment call uh, or expand the the realm of who might be included within their point scheme, let's say, right. uh, to try to better accommodate some of those um, some 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 of those programs that uh, don't meet the strict number if you're ticking boxes, but in a sense expand the number of boxes that are available to tick. Right, right, right. Um, I, I was thinking of two different things there. Uh, one of them was there was a series of uh, like police procedural shows that I believe were were Canadian content, but that were um, very careful to not show their Canadianness on screen. You know, um, and so is that that's a way to get around the regulation or is that is that is that a getting around the spirit of this of this process? Well, I think once you create a set of rules and say this is what you need to qualify, the marketplace responds and tries to meet those standards. So right. I don't think it's trying to get around anything. It's actually the opposite. It's trying to qualify directly for, let's say, some certain matching funding that might be available or some Canadian funding that may right. be available as a CanCon production, uh, but wanting to not make it too Canadian in the sense of the marketplace that it's trying to sell to, wanting to make it a bit more of a generic type right. of program. So you can sell it to the American market and overseas and so on. Precisely. And therein, I think, lies part of the problem with our current system. Um, we reward certain skills or cer- certain aspects of a production, but not others. And so we can debate as to whether or not that truly makes it Canadian. It might be viewed as Canadian from a purely industrial perspective because of the number of participants that are Canadian. Right. But it doesn't really necessarily tell a Canadian story. And in fact, we could well imagine certain programs that uh, might be far more Canadian, might be having based on novels written by some of the best-known Canadian authors that don't qualify as Canadian because the production involves too many people that aren't Canadian when you're producing it. Right. Um, I was just thinking of, um, and I'm old enough to remember uh, the kerfuffle around uh, Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams, uh, when it did not qualify as Canadian content for radio airplay. Um, and it was because, if I'm remembering it right, there was, uh, there was a rule about the, the artist. It, it was, again, a point system, and it was the, the artist uh, who wrote the music, who wrote the lyrics, and who produced the song, something like that. It's, right. Uh, yeah. And so, and so th- these rules you know, have been around for a while. They are quite rigid. And, and there has been, in recent years, I think, uh, a growing momentum behind revisiting some of those approaches, recognizing that if the goal is to tell Canadian stories – then our current point system isn't doing a very good job right. of it. 
uh, or doesn't necessarily do a good job. But if the it. goal is employing Canadians, then it's it is doing that. Yeah, it, it certainly it's employing certain Canadians, right? Okay, um, you know, and those Canadians or those that are within the point system are loath to expand it or open it up because suddenly their talents might not be uh, as critical to ensuring that you qualify. Right, so, because they're getting work now based on the system. Okay. Yeah, we have a, in a sense almost an incumbent situation that's taken place where certain since certain skills qualify. Uh, those skills are specifically in demand, but there are people that might not otherwise qualify who say, hey, um, this isn't truly always identifying Canadian-based stories, and we could expand the roster of what we consider to be Canadian, even if it's primarily industrial policy. Um, but, of course, there are those that currently qualify that would oppose that. Uh, and note, of course, that if it is industrial policy, then we can well come back to the question of, well, Star Trek Discovery right. is employing lots and lots of Canadians. And so if the goal is just to ensure that we get a thriving industry with lots of people employed, then the CanCon system doesn't even make a whole lot of sense because what we really just want to do is attract as much production here as possible. Right. And what makes a Canadian story well, under the rules, there are, as we've been talking about, strict criteria about what is a Canadian story. What that perversely does, though, is that it means that only certain people behind the camera qualify as Canadian for the purposes of Canadian productions. Okay. And so by privileging some over others, you can find one production that might be just a nondescript cop show or a law and order type show, mm -hmm. and that's Canadian – just because you've met the points, whereas you could have something based on a Margaret Atwood novel or Robertson Davies novel, potentially even filmed in Canada. But if you use enough people that are not Canadian as part of the point system, then it doesn't qualify as Canadian at all. And are we talking about like the the director, the editor, the director of photography, those kinds of roles? Those are the kind. There is a yeah, list. Okay. And so yeah. some qualify, some don't. That's right. a, sort of a historical choice. Right. And I think that um, it kind of like it'll be it's it's the the creative ones, right? Like the the no, that's that's not necessarily fair to the person who's like rigging the lights on a show, but having a bunch of Canadian guys who are who are doing light rigging doesn't make a show Canadian. Well, we made, certain choices were made at a at a certain point in time, and the industry structured itself to meet the requirements that were established. Right. And so one might view that as either gaming the system to create Canadian content that doesn't feel all that Canadian or simply responding to the incentives that regulation provided by saying, if you meet certain criteria, then you will enjoy you certain benefit. benefits yeah. as being within the system. And so what that means is that you privilege certain kinds of activities over others. I think in the current environment, it is certainly a fair question. Indeed, I think it's an important question to ask. That might that that's obviously helped certain sectors within the creative industries, and it's certainly we've got a flourishing industry to be sure. Um, but does that mean that we really get Canadian stories? Right. And you know, could we adopt something that's a bit more flexible, um, either that incorporates some judgment calls about what it means to be Canadian, or if we even want to remove that? expanding the list of who qualifies um, so that we find try to find some mechanisms to anchor some of this content more directly beyond the fact that it's on filmed on a Toronto soundstage using certain Canadians uh, within certain aspects of that production right I think that's the challenge with any kind of art right like how do you how do you say what it is 
I think it's exceptionally uh, a, a challenge, especially once you bring in those judgment calls and immediately you open yourself up to a kind of questioning that doesn't exist today. Today, the questioning isn't whether you qualify as Canadian or not. It's in a sense that higher level question, what does it mean to be Canadian right. and are we actually <laughs> ensuring that Canadian stories are told? It's more comfortable to get into that kind of broader not quite philosophical type debate, but that broader policy debate, um, then perhaps it is to have someone who says, hey, uh, I think my story is Canadian. Here's why. But someone judged it as not Canadian because we opened the door to some of those more subjective criteria. Right. And now in that respect, there are other there are other mechanisms in place to encourage production in Canada. Right, like, are there there are subsidies, or there are tax breaks, or like, what what kind of stuff is out there? There's lot. There are lots <laughs> of uh, subsidies and and tax benefits that that can that are available within the system. Canada isn't really different than almost any other jurisdiction in that regard. Mm. There is a a whole marketplace out there of jurisdictions vying for these kinds of productions. They're viewed as bringing in value into the economy and, of course, creating jobs so that um, you, get in a, you get, in a sense, this competition that exists between provinces and states and, and other locales right. for that kind of production. In fact, if we look at the breakdown of uh, how Canadian television production is funded, um, we find that today the funding that comes from, say, Canadian broadcasters is a very small part of the overall puzzle. Okay. Um, a far far more significant funding today for English language Canadian programming comes both from the public in effect through uh, tax credits and, and other sorts of mechanisms of that nature, uh, as well as from foreign financing. And so foreign financings become a bigger part of the puzzle in many ways than the broadcasters have. And so that's then selling these stories to markets in other countries. That's surely part of what's taking okay. place. I think there is a broad recognition today that it is a global marketplace. And if all you are trying to do is sell your production within Canada, it's tough to have the kind of budget within your production right. that's going to compete with some of the other content that's being created both in Canada and elsewhere that – views their marketplace on a more global level, that means the opportunity for far more money coming in, and that means potentially far larger budgets from a production perspective. And the sense is that the larger production, the budget, in many instances, the better the quality right, of the, of the, the finished product. Um, I was just thinking back to something you said uh, right near the top um, that you specifically called out uh, English production, mm -hmm. because this is this less of a challenge in Quebec? Well, I think there are challenges within French programming, whether mm -hmm. Quebec or uh, other parts of Canada uh, with francophone markets. Uh, but it is different in the sense that the competition is somewhat different. Mm -hmm. They aren't competing as directly with English language U.S. content in the right. way that much of the rest of the country is. And so you do see, if you take a look at the most viewed programs in Quebec and compare them with the most viewed programs in English language Canada, in English language Canada, it's overwhelmingly U.S. programs. Right. In Quebec, there are many more homegrown provincial programs that are what's viewed. And so the incentives to create there both in terms of protections and opportunities that the government might provide, but also in terms of a marketplace that uh, 
seems to be far more interested in their own local right. content, and part of it may be language, and part of it may be culture, um, means that you get an industry that has grown supported surely by regulation, but also by a marketplace that at times seems far more interested in some of that domestic yeah, in and its, created content. In its own stories. Yes. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the the nuts and bolts of this stuff. Um, the Do you know offhand percentages or the rules around how – uh, how uh, how much Canadian content has to show up on a television station or on a, a radio station? Well, there are rules, and it's usually around thirty per. It, well, there are there are rules, but then they vary both for the music side and then for the right. television side um, in terms of the amount of Canadian content, and of course, the amount of CanCon at times can be you know broadly enough defined to include things that aren't strictly. Dramatic programming, right? Uh, although CRTC rules, let's say within the television sphere, will establish specific rules, especially around what's viewed as prime time for a certain amount of Canadian content that has to be uh, aired, and you tend to find that in the seven to eight o'clock hour, the eight okay. to eleven o'clock, conventionally being the key prime time hours where a lot of what you get tends to be U.S. programming. Right. Or sometimes um, Canadian programming consigned to, so to speak, Friday night or Saturday night, which tend to be yeah, the lower low, lower yeah. viewership numbers, at least in terms of conventional programming, although, interestingly enough, Friday night is one of the highest viewing nights for Netflix. Uh, so people are still viewing. Yeah. Um, they're just viewing in a different place. But, but they're view, using a different platform oh, and, that's fascinating. and viewing different things at that point in time. So there are some of those rules in place. There are ongoing battles between the large broadcasting companies and some of the con- some of the creator groups at the CRTC at the Broadcast and Telecom Regulator uh, about what those percentages ought to be, how broadly they ought to define the scope of what a broadcaster's mandate is. And so, if you're a broadcaster with a whole series of different channels, some pay television channels or specialty right. channels, and some conventional ones, can you try to group some of those together so that you put lots of your CanCon on one of your oh, channels right. on others. Okay, so, okay. so there are often those ongoing fights, and then there are ongoing battles, too, about what percentage of spend has to take place in terms of some of the actual contributions towards some of right. this programming. Um, and those debates start bringing in the Netflixes of the world or in, on the radio side, the satellite uh, channels, which was once also the subject of much debate about CanCon, as we, in a sense, see new technologies and new delivery vehicles and platforms emerge, the question gets asked yet again, um, how, if at all, do we replicate some of our CanCon rules for this new medium? Right. And so um, uh, you you brought up the, the CRTC. Is that the, the body that, that regulates this stuff? Right. That's, they, yeah. they have a lot of other duties as well. They do. So they're Canada's broadcast and telecommunications regulator. Uh, so they're involved in everything from licensing television and radio stations. Right. So that's, that's so where – you're allowed to broadcast – Precisely, okay. it's the you know certainly if we go back many years, Spectrum, the technology in a sense used to broadcast or disseminate 
whether television or radio, right. was a scarce resource. And so right. you'd have yeah. a regulator in place to ensure that it was used to its maximum benefit in the broader public interest. Yeah. That and makes so sense because there were only 13 channels on that first dial. Limited right? number of yeah. channels, limited amount of, in a sense, uh, spectrum available to be used. And so you want to ensure that it is used well in the broader public interest, and you license it. And so by virtue of using a licensing system, you can then seek to impose certain rules on the licensee to say, if you want this license, here's the quid pro here's quo you that do. you okay. have to have to provide. Of course, today, one of the real interesting issues is in an internet world, when anyone can be a broadcaster or a podcaster, yep. um, do we need some of those same sorts of rules? It's not a world of scarcity anymore in terms right. of allowing those voices to be disseminated. It's just basic freedom of expression. And how appropriate is it to maintain some of those same kinds of rules in an internet world? Right. And I think that the 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 question there becomes, again, the question of telling Canadian stories, right? Like, do we need... Do we need a mechanism in place to make sure that those stories are being told? Right. And, and, and there are those that would argue to, that the, the same concerns that existed before still exist today. And they have argued and continue to argue for, in a sense, replicating the same kinds of mandates and systems and perhaps even licensing mm-hmm. in an Internet world. And there are others that say there is an incredible array of content available much of it outside the conventional sphere, whether that's the videos that people are posting to YouTube or the podcasts that people make available through various podcasting networks, um, that supplement in many ways some of the conventional broadcasts or content, and that there's lots of Canadian stories out there that challenge becomes more of one of discoverability, let's right, say, yeah. than it is of creation. Uh, and that suggests that Either we don't need regulation or the kinds of regulations or rules that we need are different from the ones that we've had in the right. past. So just so, so that I'm, I'm getting this, um, right now with uh, television stations there's a, or, and radio stations, there's a percentage of content that they have to play that is qualified as Canadian. To qualify as Canadian, it has a, like a, a, a strict point system about who created it and how it was created. Um, and the amount of money spent. Um, I thought that that was really interesting because is that a, a, to keep someone from making like a, a, a terrible cheap show to fulfill their Canadian content uh, like requirements? No. Or it's not the money. The money that is spent is not money necessarily directly for their programs, but okay. rather contributing a percentage of their revenues towards funds that help fund the creation of Canadian content. Now, arguably, that's a a virtuous circle because they have a need for Canadian content. They then take some of their revenues that they arguably benefit from the system. That leads to more production, which then gives them content that they can then license and buy. Okay. How does that apply to a company like Netflix? In short, it doesn't. Okay. Um, And... There, this is where this is at the heart of the current debate today over a so-called Netflix tax, which has been a very confusing discussion in Canada. In part because it's taken to mean any number of different things. Sometimes it's taken to mean whether or not you should pay sales tax, GST or HST on your Netflix service, um, for which I think a lot of people think 
why not? Right. It's an online service yeah. like any other, and surely it ought to be, there ought to be taxes applicable. The issue is that foreign providers that don't have a Canadian presence don't have to collect right. those taxes. Right. Sometimes it's taken to mean that these companies should be paying income taxes, um, but that's really no different than any other uh, tax issue for any corporation who often establish themselves in a way that's the most tax beneficial. It is also discussed in the context of should Netflix be required to make a contribution of revenues, whether global or perhaps just based on their Canadian revenues, that would go into a fund to create Canadian content. Now, at the moment, they're outside of that system, and there are those that argue that Netflix ought to be incorporated or brought into the system. They also, I should note, make the same argument for Internet service providers, arguing that people are accessing Netflix or YouTube or lots of other video content through their Internet connection. And so why don't ISPs pay the same way that cable and satellite companies do? Interesting. Uh, I think there are very good arguments in both instances why they should not be paying. Um, In the case of internet providers, um, that would increase some of what are already some of the highest bills in the world in terms of the costs of internet access. We've got still a segment of our population that doesn't have access, often due to affordability concerns. And so increasing the cost of internet access to fund CanCon will have the effect of removing certain people from access altogether because it will become unaffordable. And of course, we also have to bear in mind that lots of people use the internet for lots of reasons that have nothing to do with watching videos or listening to music. The notion that they ought to subsidize the creation of content that they're not even accessing strikes me as problematic. The internet isn't a cable system. And so treating it like cable um, is is, is apples and oranges in the sense of of how people use it. Yeah. The, the Netflix issue, I think, is, is certainly been more, even more contentious to date and raises even more challenging questions because the Netflix contribution to Canada essentially points to a different model of how companies can contribute to the creation of Canadian content outside of the conventional regulatory system. So if you are in the traditionalist camp, you say – This looks like a broadcaster. Broadcasters contribute. And so Netflix, you ought to contribute. Right. If you're Netflix, you respond in several different ways. First, you make the point that you might look like a broadcaster, but you don't have many of the advantages that broadcasters have. You don't have that spectrum that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. So you're not licensed, uh, which I think is a good thing because if we start licensing anybody that streams video this or audio, this podcast would right, have to get exactly. licensed. In yeah. fact, you know, millions of Canadians who are using the internet for lots of different purposes to speak out might find themselves subject to a license. And I don't think that's what you do when you're trying to uh, safeguard and, in fact, enhance freedom of expression. So they don't have those benefits. They don't have some benefits that actually come under the Copyright Act. Let's say cable companies get to retransmit signals. They get to take the off-air television signal, retransmit it out, to your television, okay. uh, and they actually even impose Canadian commercials over the U.S. feed, right. something known as simultaneous substitution, where they si- where it airs at the same time in the United States and Canada, the U.S. signal is substituted with the Canadian signal, with Canadian commercials. They have the right to do that under the Copyright Act. 
the fact that they're required to contribute might be seen as a quid pro quo for some of those benefits. Right. Well, because they get the benefit of having sold the commercial. Precisely. Plus, as we were just talking about, uh, they get to, in a sense, tap into these funds for the creation of Canadian content, uh, whereas foreign companies at the moment oftentimes don't. And so Netflix says there are lots of reasons why you get benefits for your payments. We don't. There is also, I think, a marketplace argument here. Netflix says that Canada is one of the three biggest markets for production for it. So okay. it is spending billions of dollars every year. And Canada, alongside the United States and the UK, are one of the three biggest markets where they are producing content. And in fact, as we just talked about, foreign financing, including Netflix and others, has now become one of the biggest sources of funding for Canadian content. Right. So if you're Netflix or if you're the streaming service from Amazon or if you're CBS, which now streams here, or if you're Hulu, which is going to stream here, uh, part of what you argue is that you say, listen, Canada can compete without all these regulations. We produce here in Canada because you've got talented people, you've got it at a price point that makes sense for us, uh, and we can take that content and make it accessible and available and marketable on a global basis. We do that not because a regulator has required us to do it, but rather because in the world of competition where you could produce anywhere, we want to produce in Canada. Right. Now, that's a, that's a big shift for certain of the Canadian production world, which is accustomed to production takes place because we require it through regulation. <laughs> yeah. And we now have these large global companies saying, we're willing to produce here. In fact, we're happy to produce here, but we do it not because you've regulated it. We do it because you can compete on a global stage. So I think that the, the big question, I think that's the question that we're still arguing about is – are these regulations here to make sure that uh, uh, Canada sees film production and sees jobs? Are these regulations here to see that Canadian stories are told? And so I feel like there's a couple of different forces pulling pulling that in two different ways, and we're going to get a different different final uh, uh, answer to this question depending on on where we decide as a country to go with it. I think you're right. I think the, one of the challenges we face is that the answer to that question is yes. Uh, <laughs> depending on who you're speaking to when you're lobbying for a particular model, you are either trying to make the claim that this is fundamentally a cultural issue about telling Canadian stories, and so we need strict rules that are broadly applied. And at other times, when you're trying to convince governments to increase or maintain certain subsidies, when you're talking about economics, the argument is this is industrial policy. And you need to ensure that as many people in this sector are working as possible. And here's the contribution we make to Canada's GDP every year. And so you you often will find whether it's before parliamentary committees or uh, as part of the broader policy debate, both arguments made and partially depends on who the audience happens to be. We've seen government try to find a way to, in a sense, navigate that those two – they're not quite competing issues, but at least those two rationales right. for why one might want to support or there's a need to support this sector. Um, I think that the prior Canadian Heritage Minister, Melanie Jolie, started more on – 
came to the area thinking about it from a Canadian cultural stories perspective, ultimately came up with a CanCon strategy that was more premised on the economics of the world. Mm-hmm. How do you ensure discoverability? How do we embrace some of these global players and bring them here? And how do we maximize our export strategy so that there are great benefits um, in terms of the CanCon that's produced here and sold around the world? And there is an ancillary benefit of people better recognizing Canada and, and exporting our stories elsewhere. And then was after that was put forward, got pulled back into the, well, what about the story side, which right. is, why, is part of why you saw the blow up with Netflix in the province of Quebec and perhaps part of the reason why she's no longer the heritage minister. Um, and she faced a lot of pressure, especially in that province, to say, I'm going to regulate Netflix as opposed to try to strike deals with Netflix and incentivize them to come into the marketplace. Right. So it is an ongoing, longstanding debate. And I think in some ways Canadians themselves are already voting with their own preferences. We see the popularity of these online services. Um, and we see the, the success stories that are already taking place within the Canadian production marketplace. And that, that to me is in, in a sense once we move beyond – the kind of pull at your heartstrings, either as an <laughs> either as an economist or as a Canadian. Right. Let's talk about the data, and at least right so far, the data tells us that Canadian producers are doing fabulously well. Canadian production is at all time highs. Last year, more than a billion more spent on Canadian production than in the year before. Record amounts of CanCon, and so. The claims of a crisis and that the internet is destroying this are simply purely at odds with the actual data that's out there mm-hmm. in terms of what's actually taking place on the ground. Michael Geis, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Okay, well, thanks for having me. Oh, I, I've got a site. I'm at michaelgeist.ca, and I'm on Twitter at, at, at mgeist. Use Interact Flash to pay conveniently and securely at hundreds of thousands of merchants across Canada. Learn more at interact.ca.